Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got myself, Ron Hayes, in, in Wyoming. Michael Morrow, been up in the Arctic for, well, Michael Morrow, been in the field for about 45 days. Is that right? 45 days, just back. I've been back for about a week, so I'm getting readjusted. Get You're getting reacquainted with a mattress? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Mattress and a shower. <laughs> and a shower. We can go into <laughs> more of that in a little bit. Yeah. Jason Loft is just coming back back to the continent from from the dark continent. Finally yep. got to Africa. How was that? Wow, man, it was amazing. That, yeah, really. Sorry, that's just an intro no, question. Good. We're not going to get know, into the depths of it I understand. yet. But... I understand. <laughs> yeah, I got so many questions. I... <laughs> me too. Yeah, you were, you were sending me, so, you know, you took your Zolio, but you also had, there were several places where you had phone service. So you were sending me a text every once in a while, just with these little teasers kind of taking little jabs at me for not going with you. And I... <laughs> I will tell you, I, I was regretting it big time because it sounds like you guys had a great trip. Yeah, we really did. And, you know, just on a side note, the, the Zolio, I did take it with me and it did come in clutch a couple of times. I'll be honest with you. I really love and having that thing. Um, you know, it's something we've talked about before, but having that thing and having the ability to just touch base with like my mom, for example, and let her know where I am and I'm safe. And for whatever, you know, that's a big deal to moms, right? Even though I'm, you know, 49 years old and it, it doesn't matter. It's a big deal to mom. So anyways, mm -hmm. yeah. Having that availability to just kind of check in and touch base. And when, especially when I didn't have any Wi-Fi or cell service, which was, you know, there was a large portion of the trip where that was the case too. So yeah, it came in clutch a couple of times. So love having that thing. It is. It's sweet. It was the same for me in the Arctic. Only there was no Wi-Fi, you know, it's just Zolio every day. And then having the unlimited plan was kind of cool because then I could Keep you guys updated, and then obviously my mom, just like you. Yep, yep. <laughs> you mama's boys. Yeah, I, I admit it. <laughs> so what'd you do for? Uh, was it mostly Wi-Fi, or did you buy a SIM card when you got got over there? So for me, you know, I my my work um, has my my cell phone is through my work, so they have that international plan where when you go international, I think it's like ten dollars a day, and it still gives you your your voice and your service, your whatever. So if you use data or, you know, sell data or data, data to transfer, you know, a text or whatever, then you're going to pay that $10 that day. So there was multiple days, no. like I said, where I didn't have, you know, service. So I just wasn't using it at that point, but the days I did, I think it ended up being like three days. So it ends up being like 10 bucks a day for those three days. So when I had when I had Wi-Fi, I just would text via you know my my iPhone. I would just text via my uh, the the Wi-Fi, the internet, and turn my data off. So, so on the Zolio, did you send uh, locations? Because that's kind of fun too. I love sending locations from that. Yeah, I did. I did. I sent my mom a couple different times, and one you know one was from camp, the camps that we were at, and then another time I sent it from being just out in the field and that and. I talked to her about it when I got home and she thought it was pretty cool to be able to see, you know, she'd pull it up and go, you know, check it out on Google and 
do the live view and all that and not the live view but you know what i mean the the actual image view so you could see and she's like yeah, that's pretty cool so yeah you know fun. i thought that'd be kind of cool just for uh historical purposes too right so if you have all this data that you've sent to somebody else with the latin along in five years you can go back to it and say oh you know i filmed a blah 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 right here or this was the camp i stayed at which would be kind of cool because that's that's easy to forget the actual location if you're not going back to the same place frequently. You know, it's funny you said that actually. So on this trip, I committed finally, we've talked about it before I have anyways, to starting to write a photography journal, you know, mm -hmm. and I finally did on this trip because there was so much stuff we were seeing and that I didn't want to forget some of the nuances and the details of the things we were seeing. So every night I tried to be disciplined enough to go ahead and write my journal um, about the things we saw that day. And, I actually used the Zolio to, to, to write down those very feature that latitude longitude stuff. So I had that as well in my journal. So, you know, you could use a GPS for that, not, you know, as well, but the Zolio with having the Zolio just makes it super simple to see that. So. Yeah. I had somebody ask me if I was doing a journal too. And I, I basically said no, but I'm doing a journal through text messages every day. So by having the Zolio unlimited plan and then whether I was telling my mom or you guys or, whatever i was saying oh i just filmed a blah 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 and it's been really cold and you know it's basically what you would put in a journal only it's in the form of text messages so i i thought well i kind of am doing a journal but not exactly like you would be doing when you're writing it down sure sure that's still that's a cool way to think about it. i haven't i didn't think about it that way but you're right all that history is there you can refer back to it so it's a new book idea Rather yeah, than your journal, go. you can just do my text messages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Text messages home. No, right. Zolio messages home. Zolio messages, yep. <laughs> Zolio messages from the field. <laughs> there you go. Well, while we're talking about it, let's just put it out there that uh, we still have the promotion going oh, on with those guys. So you can get your $20 activation fee waived if you, when you fill out the paperwork, just put in wild exposed no and just wild exposed and they'll waive the $20 activation fee for the Zolio and you know you got three different plans so you don't have to go in full bore with unlimited stuff if you just want to check in I think it's 20 messages or $20 for the lowest plan so it's affordable for just staying in contact or for emergency stuff right is a good peace of mind that's for sure you know i mean we were never alone or you know we had people around us that could get us places or whatever but um having that peace of mind when you don't have cell service to be able to get help if you needed it you know more of the backcountry alaska stuff is what i'm kind of thinking of right or even backcountry here in the states anywhere you know if you don't have cell service it could be really it could come in yeah, close for a, sure a lot of little pockets the pockets that you're going to get in trouble in Right. They're the ones that don't have any service, you know, even, even just in Wyoming around, around town, you know, there's those locations where you're going to go and you're going to drop down into a Canyon or you're looking for a mountain lion or whatever. And there's no service at all. So it's uh, it's a great tool to have, even when you're not in, you know, Northern Alaska or Africa, it's a great tool to have real close to home. So, well, and where I was at, it was, I made sure I had it every day. I made sure it was charged every day because you just don't know. I mean, we were about 150 miles away from the nearest 
town, not necessarily a town. It's just like a, you know, where you might be able to get some help. So it's not like it's, you're not going to get someone to show up just like that. And normally in these kind of camps where I go, we have a plane or we have a helicopter or something close by. So you don't have to worry as much, but this one, we would go 20 days without seeing an airplane or anything, any, and nobody except for our little group. We never saw people come by. We, we were so remote that having that Zolia was kind of like a little peace of mind. It wasn't dangerous or nothing, but you just never know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Things can go wrong in a hurry and you know, it's the things you don't expect or plan for that always bite you. So. Yep. Yeah. On my trip, we had really good weather most of the time but you never know up in the arctic it can snow at any time i think it snowed the day after i left which was it would have been cool but it also i'm glad i was gone because <laughs> snow and blowing and just cold is uh so that's a, that's a lot that's a good contrast because you were you know when we're communicating you're talking about you know it's 40 degrees i'm here in eastern wyoming and we had several days that were in triple digits you know, just based on the time of year. And then Jason, you're traveling to Africa, but you're traveling to Africa, Southern Africa in, in their winter time. Right. right. So what, how right. were the temperatures there? Yeah, I think we had the gamut covered, you know, Mike with the low end and I was right there in the middle in the sweet spot. And, you know, we were in lows of 45, 50, you know, highs of, I mm -hmm. think one day it got up into the low eighties and the rest of the time it was mid seventies for highs. Um, unusually rainy for them this time of year. They've had nothing but tons of rain. So um, even with that being the case, I never really had any problems with any mosquitoes or bugs. I was really surprised with all that. So Really? Yep. yep. Were you, when I went to Africa the first time, you know, growing up and watching all the stuff that we watch, right? You just assume, oh, it's going to be hot. And it's just going to be all these cool animals that live in the warmer temperatures. But I can remember riding down the road early first thing in the morning, freezing my butt off because we were in safari trucks that actually had a seat up above. So you're, there's no windshield, there's no nothing. And you're going down the road and you're like shivering and, and yep. you know, by 10 o'clock it's nice and it's perfect. But first thing in the morning, it gets kind of chilly. Was that the case? Uh, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. We fortunately drew warned us of that, right? He's experienced and he told us to bring, you know, beanies and, a decent jacket and some gloves just in case. And it all has, to, it all comes down to the, the humidity. So at 45 degrees riding around 15, 20 miles an hour in one of those safari vehicles without a windshield or any windscreen, it gets, it gets pretty chilly. You know, it feels like 32 or 30, you know, 35, whatever. So yeah, it, it, we, it was usually pretty chilly in the morning and the evenings, not so much the evenings. We usually get back to camp after the night drives um, before it got too chilly. But my wife would tell you otherwise. I think she felt like she was cold most of the time, you know, when we were in the <laughs> safari vehicles. But for a guy like me, it was it was it was nice. I was really loving it, knowing that it was triple digits back here at home. So <laughs> Yeah, but let's put that in context. We'll be in Yellowstone and in the wintertime and it's, you know, twenty degrees outside and you're in a long sleeve t shirt covered up with a button up shirt, and that's it. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I admit, I like we'll, it a little. We'll cut your Jason runs warm. Yeah, we'll cut your bride some slack. So, yeah. if you all ever come on a an adventure with Jason, just don't take his recommendations for clothing with 
<laughs> don't take them seriously. You may want don't to ask me what I, whatever ask he me what says. I'm taking, double up. Right, right. Don't yeah, ask me what yeah. I'm taking. Just <laughs> yeah, I, that's all I took was just a light jacket. And I'll tell you, one time I was a little chilly. I ended up putting the the rain poncho on that they had because it was chilly enough, and it actually rained on us a couple of days. You know, and we were told mm-hmm. this time of year there's no water. It's their dry season. You're it's going to be sunny, blue skies. You know, the, uh, the the growth would be really low. And everything we heard from the, the the locals there was it's it was way unseasonably wet, and the grasses were actually pretty high. It was like their their fall is more what they related it to mm-hmm. as far as the growth and everything. So, but thank goodness. The so bugs. was that better for photography? You think having that rain, or do you think it would have been better if it would have been drier? You know, I just I don't know if it was better or worse. I mean, the scenarios we ended up in, it ended up working, playing out fine. I was worried about it, you know, certain scenarios with the grass being too tall to be able to really photograph some of the animals. But for whatever reason, where we ended up encountering them, it wasn't an issue. Um, you know, there's a few shots I got where some grass in the face and that, but, you know, being art, trying to be artistic in that a little bit, that tells a story too, right? So mm-hmm. you take some of those images and you let the, let you know, leave the grass alone and let it be there because that's part of the reality of the situation, but. But yeah, for for the most part, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't an issue, and I actually think it added because we actually had some color, you know, the, which is unseasonably not the, it's not the case generally this time of year. So, huh. and this is South Africa again. I need to be clear because I don't think it was necessarily rainy, you know, all over the all over the place. But in Kruger specifically in South Africa, Johannesburg area, it was um, unseasonably wet. My son just got back from Western Africa, West Africa, like on the Horn. Uh-huh. And um, he said the same thing. He said it was it, it rained a lot on them, but they were kind of in that rainforest type area, um, a little bit more than than what you guys had. But he said it was it was pretty wet. I was yeah. surprised. I mean, he went obviously for a different reason, but I was surprised to find out they didn't. The only wildlife they saw were birds and bats. That was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, things are definitely changing. I mean, all across the, I mean, it's good to have this experience, right? Because with people being over there and me being up here and you in Wyoming and um, we had, our crew showed up on the first and we were supposed to be into camp in the first and we didn't get out till the 12th because there was so much snow and no place to land these planes where we were supposed to camp. And then the sea ice is still blocking some of the, filming that they're trying to do up there now and they can't get out on the ice. So things are changing all over the place. Just patterns are changing and it's too shallow of data set to know exactly if it's, you know, crazy, crazy all over, or if it's always going to change, but it's, things are definitely different. I think it um, actually played into our advantage. Some um, with that, with animal movement, because for whatever reason we got pretty spoiled where they'd have some pretty good rain at night. And then in the daytime, for the most part, there was a couple of days where it rained on us, but which I actually like, I like some of the mood of the rain that the rain can bring too. But um, one morning we had a situation where it rained most of the morning and it was pretty slow. Then right as that rain broke, right, everything started moving pretty good. And that really, you know, played out to be in our advantage for one of the crazy encounters we had. So I won't get into that. right. And you minute, get, but, yeah. you get that insane light scenario, right? When the storms break up too. And, Right, right. That's my favorite. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> you just always hope you're on something when the clouds part. <laughs> so for those that can't that can't see what happened right there is Ron just got the chills and he shuddered just, a little bit. I just <laughs> had a shiver. <laughs> <laughs> and I can relate. I can relate. <laughs> yeah. So Mike, you were you were doing a video project, obviously. And uh what was the terrain like up there? I mean you think Northern Alaska, you think you're going to be like everywhere else in Alaska against the mountain ranges. What was it like way that far north? Right. And I had no idea what to expect. I'd never been up that far north. So I got out there and when you fly out, it's pretty much flat, but it's full of wetlands. There's just so much water up there. So it was pretty much flat, lots of water, and everything is sand. There's no rocks, no the only topography were like sand dunes. It, it was a pretty interesting topography. I, I would never in a million years expected to, to just see sand everywhere mm -hmm. you went, whether it's the sand dunes or the river bottoms or that tundra is all covered with, I mean, it's all just sand. So you look for dens, whether it was a, an Arctic fox, an Arctic ground squirrel, um, anything was just digging in sand. So it's pretty easy and great for, for den sites and, and some of the animals. It's got to be a lot easier than living in the rocks. But um, I took one picture one night just on my cell phone walking back. And if I showed you guys that picture, and I've, in fact, I'll put it in the show notes. It could have been, you would have think that I was in like Baja on the coast of somewhere beautiful, you know, 75 and sunny. It was crazy. It was just a whole different ball game out there and it's so flat that the wind blows pretty frequently so those sand dunes just it's just that same the reason you get sand dunes everywhere right just that wind nothing to stop it, it's just blowing mm -hmm. that sand around and it's it was pretty cool it's very very flat the only way you ever see any sort of topography is from a drone you would not understand how beautiful it is if somebody just blindfolded you and dropped you off and just said have, have at it you would think it's just like this barren flat, but as soon as you take a drone up in there, it was, it was amazingly beautiful as far as just seeing the, all the water and all the tundra and it was pretty cool. And when we first got there, everything was brown. And by the time I left 45 days later, everything was green. So it was kind of cool to see that transition too. Hmm. We set up a lot of blinds for some of the filming we were doing and when we did that initial blind set, we had to take a hammer with us and some big spikes because the, the tundra is still frozen. Frozen ground, yeah. Yeah, you would step and it'd be like maybe two inches of tundra that was soft and smushy. But then right below that is just solid ice. But it melted pretty fast. So by the mm -hmm. time we left, you could put a tent stake in or a, a stake to hold the blind up just with your, your foot. You could just smash it into the ground. But you walk through a lot of water too and you would wear just like hip waders or chest waders. And it's interesting because you can feel the ice underneath in the water, underneath the, the, whatever the bottom, the, all that plant material and just all the water sediment that's down in the bottom of these little sloughs and ponds and stuff. And it's just a sheet of ice down there. It's pretty, hmm. pretty interesting. You'd walk along, you could feel a little crack. It was, um, it'd be cool to see a lot of that stuff. They were telling me about some of those rivers that you can cruise down and see this humongous blocks of ice on the side, on the banks. I didn't get to see that anywhere, but that would be kind of cool. I was on the, 
look out for mammoth tusks, but I never found one. <laughs> didn't score, huh? <laughs> nope. Wouldn't that be? But we didn't have any transportation. Crazy. We got flown in there and basically it was just a, a camp and you had to walk everywhere. So, you know, you might get six or seven miles out. So you're not, I mean, you're just seeing such a small fraction of what the possibilities are for that whole Arctic region. So I can see why it didn't, but the, it, I think it's potential. The potential is there to see that kind of stuff. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. The coolest thing about the spot is the midnight sun. Being able to see sun 24 hours a day, it never set the whole time I was there. It was pretty cool. Mm. We got to the point where we were shooting you wouldn't even think about going out till like 9 p.m. And then you would stay out till 6 or 7 in the morning and then come back and try to sleep. Shoot all night. Just shoot all night. And this is the prettiest light. It just, you know, low on the horizon for so many hours. It never set and it wasn't seriously low. It wasn't like it was almost touching the horizon. It was pretty high in the sky. But, you know, if you're in Colorado or, or Wyoming or Utah this time of year, what is it about? eight no probably seven o'clock when you get that yeah, start getting that pretty light eight o'clock yep it's like that only it's that way for three or four or five or six hours <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool i think we went in so the summer solstice is on june 21st we went in on the 11th i don't know when the sun actually rises above the horizon if i had to guess i would say it was sometime in may probably and then it doesn't set below the horizon until July 29th. So it's just pretty cool. Pretty cool situation, especially as a photographer, just because you get to see that pretty light all the time. So I've caught myself whining a little bit because I've just been shooting. I've just been shooting close to home for a while. And I had some people come through town and we had a family reunion not too long ago. And I just get reminded that people come here for vacation. This is this is where they want to go to get away. And uh, just get reminded how lucky we are to live in some of these remote areas. I mean, even where you guys are at, there's there's city, but you can escape it and not not be too far from from home when you're down in the states, Mike. And so I've taken the opportunity to go out and just spend my mornings out you know, get a report of burrowing owls. So I'm out trying to film burrowing owls. And, and then I just got a, just got some people that told me about these raccoons and they've got raccoons that are, have almost yellow hair. And instead of black mass, they have like these gold, gold mass. Well, they caught them on video. And so I'm going to go, I'm going to go try to catch these guys. They don't have tails. They got little stubby tails. And it's a, you know, it's just a genetic thing in this one area. Are you sure it's not a bobcat? I'm positive. (laughs) Yeah. I I saw the video. Yes. It is for sure not a bobcat. (laughs) I did think badger when they said no tail. I was like, yeah. But they know, they know what they're talking about. So, but I, I've been enjoying that. I did get my vehicle kind of. My insurance agent is probably going to question this one, but I got I was filming burrowing owls and they've already fledged, so you don't know where they're going to be. So what I did was I just set my tripod up in the back of the back of the pilot, and so I can just drive and film out the window, use the vehicle as a blind, and 
you know, cover it up if I need to, so they don't see my movement. And so I'm sitting there, I've got two owls and then two others flew in to where these guys were at. And they were all just kind of hunting bugs around these prairie dog holes. Well, then all of a sudden they all snapped their heads up in the same direction. So you knew something was coming. And my first thought was probably an antelope. And my second thought was, you know, hopefully it's some kind of predator that's going to come sniff around the burrow if, you know, at a minimum. No, it was a herd of longhorn cattle. And I'll send you a couple clips for the show notes. But there was two bulls and they got on both sides of my pilot and they were wanting to get at each other. So the vehicle got beat up a little bit. And then I decided I was going to get out and try to spook them, you know, push them off and out of the area. Because the owls obviously, you know, they gathered up and went underground. So I popped the door, just reached back and popped the door. I wasn't even looking. And there was a, a longhorn calf right there. And he jumped up and kicked my door right square in the middle of, right square in the middle of it. Put a big dent in the door. So the wildlife was awesome, but the domestic life was a little bit rough on me. <laughs> and I've had I was wondering where that story was going when you had started out with insurance. I'm like, so what? <laughs> yeah. He's going to break but into your car. They, uh, they popped some rivets off my bumper. So I've got to go get some new rivets and then put a couple good dents in my, in my vehicle that I just, haven't had for very long so anyway but all that to say there's still good stuff around here and it's it's a nice place to be even though i'd rather have been in africa or alaska either one (laughs) (laughs) so jason what was the light like down there i mean you said it was kind of autumn so shorter days um yeah you know yeah, I was trying to think about that. So it was probably there's still probably twelve hour days. Um, we would we would get up and get going about five thirty or so, and a.m. And then we would be that's when we'd wake up. We'd be in the safari vehicles headed out by six, and it, it did get to be shooting light by six twenty ish or so, and then we'd be no light sunset probably right around five thirty six o'clock again. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, the way those safaris work, we'd stop and have drinks and whatever for the sunset. And then you have the night drives, which is something I, you know, I've heard about night drives and they're kind of a big deal. Um, I, (laughs) I'm probably going to get hate mail for this, but to me, it was like, I just, let's just go back. We're good. I mean, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to photograph anything we see. That's my mindset, right? Which is dumb. I should have a different mindset sometimes, but it's like, yeah, this is cool if we see, you know, a wild dog or a, a genet or a civet or something that you don't generally see in the daytime. That's the whole idea of the night drives. But we didn't see a ton of stuff. We saw some genets and we saw some things. But, yeah, anyways, so to me, it was like, yeah, let's just go back. But by the time you got back to camp, you know, it was 7 o'clock at night or so. Mm-hmm. But And then you weren't so out. So were they using artificial but... lights to help light up stuff so you could possibly see something out there? Or were you just tr- relying on just natural light? No, so... I mean, for the most of the safari, except for the night drive, they did use a spotlight. And then the whole idea is, right, is they don't spotlight the, the ungulates because of the temporary blindness. They don't want to, you know, have them get taken by a predator because of something that they're doing. So, but then they would if they saw, you know, hyenas or wild dogs or a lion or something, whatever. 
um, or these these other night critters that, that doesn't blind them, it doesn't bother them apparently, um, then they would use that to shine on the animal so we could see it more. But most of the things we saw were pretty quick. You know, they they'd see us, you'd see the light, and they they were there for you know a brief minute, and then they were gone. So <laughs> we had one night we had a hyena that was they wouldn't leave and kept coming around and, you know, giving us a pretty good show at night, um, which was kind of fun. Now as before I had really had a chance to photograph any hyenas. So it was still cool to see one. And then I got my feel of hyenas the rest of the trip for sure. So <laughs> did you have your any first trip to Africa and you're already rolling your eyes about the stinking wildlife? <laughs> no, no, no. I, yeah, that, yeah, that came across wrong, but I was, I was, the, my point was there's some animals that I had on my list that I was really hoping to see, right? And a lot of them were things that I knew were going to be pretty rare to see. Now, I, I think hyenas are pretty, you know, you see hyenas for sure. But for the most part, they're fairly nocturnal. And I was just hoping that we'd have some scenarios where we'd get to photograph them is my point. And we ended up having more than I could ask for as far as that goes, as far as being able to have good scenarios with decent light and good behavior and some things like that, you know? So mm-hmm. yeah, I ended up being, I kind of referred to it as kind of the lucky charm trip. It really, we saw so much stuff that, I mean, we had photographed the big 10 in the first two days, you know, that's the kind of trip we had. And then so no, rattle no, off the big 10 real quick. Cause you got, Oh boy, you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can help. We'll help. But I just said really? uh, it's elephants and lions and elephant lions, cheetahs, cheetahs, leopards. Leopard, leopard, rhinos, rhino. Well, two hippo. species of rhino. Hippo. We had black and white, and we did see both, which was that's all awesome. crazy, right? Um, I don't know. No, I can't remember what we the said. buffalo. Yeah, the, one. the Cape buffalo for sure. Yeah, I don't know how we missed that. Yeah. That's in the the big five. Um, what are we missing? We're close. We said elephants. We said elephants, right? Mm-hmm. Would a giraffe be in there? No, I don't think so. I'm looking it up real quick because this is going to bug me. But big ten, I don't. I haven't been enough to really have this stuff memorized. But kudu, <laughs> I don't think it's in there. I think a lot of that planes game probably doesn't fall on the list, right? So no, it probably doesn't. There's three of the cats, and then of course the yeah, it's the it's the three cats, the the lions or the I'm sorry, I'm just going to look it up real quick. Three of the cats. Elephants, rhinos, and hippos, and buffalo. That's four. So that's seven right there. Lion, leopard, cheetah, rhino, elephant, hippo. A giraffe is one. Crocodile, buffalo, and zebra. He's, you got to see oh. crocs down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we saw. Yeah. Well, actually, in the one of the camps we were in, we had it wasn't our vehicle, but another vehicle stopped to get a, a their drink in the morning um, and stretched their legs right by a pond and ended up being a crocodile in there that they got to photograph them taken out down on Impala. Oh, wow. So that would have been, we didn't see it ourselves, but the lady came back to camp and showed us the photos and that was pretty cool. So, so yeah, we, we had seen all that and photographed it within the first two days, you know, so the rest of it was like butter, right. And ended up having multiple encounters with some really, really cool critters. Um, one of the critters I was, I didn't realize they were as big a deal as they were was the wild dogs. And yeah, they're, they're fairly, yep. they're very endangered and they're only in South Africa, if I'm saying, if I remember right. And they say that in Kruger, there's probably only numbers vary that I've seen, but I've seen anywhere from 200 to 400 left. And so to yeah. see one is pretty rare. Um, according to the guide, 
seeing them is pretty cool, let alone photographing them. And we had, we saw probably about 30 wild dogs and twice we actually were in the middle of them hunting and got to see them taken down. And well, you didn't get to actually see them taken down anything, but we were there at the aftermath. And one cool thing is their, their success rate hunting is like 80 or 90% because they're a pack animal. Yeah. And they just outrun everything. Right. They just wear them out. And, uh, so they have a really, really high success rate and they pretty much just hunt nonstop. You know, they'll go because they don't kill big stuff, but they kill a lot of, uh, you know, smaller stuff. And, um, and the hyenas just follow them around. And the the other predators steal their, steal their kills. So they have to hunt constantly. Right. Right. So that was, I was surprised though. I thought the hyenas, because they're just so much bigger and that would come in and just take their stuff and they weren't the hyenas were waiting for scraps i was really surprised matter of fact i didn't get any photos of it at all but right by the safari vehicle um the hyenas came in and the dogs got after them and it was like it it was pretty wild it was lots of i wish i'd have had my cell phone going just to catch the sounds and the Mm -hmm. and the craziness of the situation because it was like you know you're like putting your arms in the vehicle like holy crap man this is crazy (laughs) these guys are going at it you know but but yeah, it was amazing. So that was, you know, that was cool just to have three different encounters with the wild dogs alone was, was amazing and lucky. And then, you know, an hour into our trip, we ended up seeing a leopard in a tree with a porcupine that was photographable. Um, we ended up seeing another leopard. With a um, porcupine as prey or a with porcupine? porcupine as prey eating it in the tree. He actually had matching quills sticking out of his cheeks, which was kind of funny. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But um and then we ended up seeing another a big male in a tree later on in the trip. It was in a really thick tree though, really low to the ground, but really thick. But he had an impala in there and was eating on it. Not not I mean, I took a few photos. There's a couple photos where you could see his eye through the leaves kind of thing, and you could tell it was a leopard with a kill on a tree. Um, but it wasn't a great scenario for photographing. But still we sat there and watched him eat on it and that and just enjoyed the experience and then had another leopard that walked right by our vehicle and I posted a photo today actually of that leopard situation where it was a female and she was kind of walking around marking trees and stuff and ended up jumping up in a tree in front of us and but it was a again it was a thick tree and it's like there's so many amazing trees around here with no leaves why don't you jump up in that one you know and get that whole <laughs> silhouette sunset shot of a leopard in a tree right but yeah anyways but but yeah, I'm not complaining. Trust me, I'm not complaining. It was pretty you were you were staying in tents too, but it was a little different scenario, right? It looked from the images that you were sending back, it looked like you were a little spoiled, and Mike was in his cot. Right? Yeah, well, we were we were definitely <laughs> spoiled compared to Mike's situation for sure. Yeah, but yeah, no, maybe I'll talk a little bit about that, right? So just kind of the the itinerary of the trip because Drew Butter Drew Butterwick put this trip together for us and. Uh, we're, you know, we're working on doing another trip next year for just, you know, in conjunction with wild and exposed. And, um, the itinerary was incredible because we got to see a lot of different aspects of Kruger. So, you know, we flew into Johannesburg, we flew into Skakuza, which is an airport in the park. It's the only airport in the park. And then we rented vans from there and we drove the vans to the first, to the first, uh, safari camp. And the first concession we went to was actually, I, I don't know how to explain it, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, so folks that are more, you know, um, <laughs> familiar with Africa can correct me on this, but the way I understand it is they, they have, it's kind of like the greater Kruger ecosystem, right? There's some concessions outside of the park boundaries, but they're still technically part of the park, I guess, 
and they lease the property to people to manage and to run as a, as a concession. And I think most of the concessions are around 25,000 acres or so, something like that. And but again, it'd be clear, very clear because this is actually surprised, but no fences anywhere, right? None of these, they're, the animals all roam wild. It's just to them, they don't know the boundaries of the park, right? Just like Yellowstone in, in the Tetons. But then they, they can manage these, these areas. And the first area we went to was kind of a central lodge. And this is like most safaris apparently, but they have safari vehicles. And then you're in, they had six, I'd, I'd call them, they kind of looked like yurts to me and they had a name for them, but they're like a round cement building um, with, you know, this, these were pretty nice. They had very nice um, accommodations inside, a very nice bed and actually had an outside door that, where you had an outside shower and, you know, grass ceilings um, that they do quite often in South Africa, which I learned they do because of the storms and that. And they learned, you know, years ago that the hurricanes would come through and blow the roofs off. Well, this now they have a very strong steel structure and they just put the grass down. And then if they have the major storms, it just blows the grass away. And then they can just relay grass down without having to rebuild the roofs. So anyways, very nice accommodations. Um, we actually started joking about this about two days in that this was actually a food safari. <laughs> and we were just taking some photos every now and then, right? Because they just feed you and feed you and feed you. I mean, it, and, it, and the food was amazing. You know, that's another thing I noticed right off the bat was from Africa versus the States was it really felt like you get a really good glimpse into what our country allows in our food and maybe what other countries don't. Like, you know, the, I don't think they have like processed sugar in their drinks over there. Um, the food was all fresh. The vegetables were fresh. The, you know, we, we had, we got to try wild game, which was awesome. We had some kudu steaks a couple times. We had spring buck um, shanks one night. We had some fish that was a local fish that was really amazing. Um, so every night we had, you know, really good meals and that, but long story short, this lodge was really, really nice. And they had the six, um, outbuildings, if you will. And that's where we were staying. And then every day is the safari, kind of like I already explained. You get up early, you have like a pre-breakfast, you know, some snacks and coffee if you want. And then you hit the safari vehicle. You have around nine o'clock, you have a drink, stretch your feet, whatever you want again. Then you make it back to camp by the time the light's garbage and the animals are asleep. Then you have the middle of the day to just kind of nap, go shower, get a massage, you know, whatever you want to do. Charge well, batteries, kind of nonchalant the way you threw that in there. Well, I mean, that's literally go it's back, like no take big a nap, deal. dump your cards, get a massage. <laughs> right. I mean, that's the that's the kind of accommodations you got, you know, and it wasn't nice enough weather for us to get in the pool. But both the camps we were in had pools. And, you know, my wife ended up taking advantage of the massage one day, which was cool. Um, you know, so, yeah, you just had sorry, you had a lot of those options you could do. Um, and. For for me, the most part, I just go back and chill and, you know, maybe get a Coke Zero or whatever and just hang out and talk with Kelly and them or whatever and about what we've been doing and what we've been seeing in that. And then maybe take a nap. And then you have lunch. At, um, and then you have breakfast, I'm sorry, at like 10 o'clock, 1030. And that this was like a cooked breakfast, like, they, you know, eggs, bacon, sausage, whatever. And then you would um, have lunch at 2. And it's a it's a hot lunch, right? It's a full meal. And then at three, you have high tea, so you had more drinks. And then um, they always had like a charcuterie board or something there too, obviously, because they're obviously not getting enough food. And then <laughs> and then they'd ask you what you wanted for your sunset drink, so you'd tell them. And then you'd go out on your safari at about 3 o'clock, you'd leave for your safari in the evening. 
And then at sunset, you'd have your drink with snacks again, because you don't have enough food. And then you'd come back uh, for your night drive at seven or seven 30, you'd have dinner. And then, you know, you'd, you'd sit around a campfire or whatever. And both of the camps had situations where, you know, again, no fences or anything. So the animals were just roaming free and multiple times while we were there in the camps, you'd have one had a pond, a, a water hole across from where we'd sit to eat and stuff in the, in the campfire. And they had a spotlight on the water hole from by a tree. And we had elephants come in and drink at the water hole while we we're sitting around the campfire or hyenas come by or whatever, you know, it was just, it was really cool. And then, um, and then, and then we left that camp after a couple of days and we actually went into the park and the vans and we did our own thing in the middle of the, in the middle of the trip where we actually drove around Kruger itself, the proper Kruger. And we stayed at Mopani, um, which is a, a northern, more northern part of the camp. So we got to see the terrain, which was different, and the critters, which was somewhat different, up in that northern area of the park. And to see more, you know, we saw more tuskers up there and saw more of that kind of stuff, uh, more kudu, more of that kind of stuff. And then we ended up going back down after a couple of days of that. Went back down south and went and stayed in a in, an, in a private concession which was a different flavor, right? They have a lot more freedom to do what they want. They can drive off road. They can whatever. That's private property. Again, no fences, but they can like the, the public concession is what I'd call it, which I know it's not the right term, but the one that was more like public property, you know, Kruger proper was you could go off road. If you were, if you saw the big five and we're trying to photograph the big five, that was their rules. If you were in the private concession, they pretty much can do whatever they want and they would go off road no matter, you know, for whatever, you know, it was just at their discretion. And you actually could get out of the vehicles and those in, in the middle of the park, right? You're not, you're technically not allowed to get out of the vehicle. And even in the, the public one, you're not allowed to get out of the vehicle for obvious reasons, right? I mean, there's big cats that might eat you. Not that they ever were a threat, but that's the, you know, that's the danger that it's there if you're not careful. So in the other one, though, in the private one, you could actually get out of the vehicle. Um, and we and there are certain scenarios where the guide let us get out and photograph some things so we could get little lower angles and stuff like that. But that was another situation where in this camp we were actually in tents. And these were glamour. These weren't not these weren't Mike tents. I'm sorry, Mike. But these were <laughs> these were essentially the same accommodations. Nice, big, fluffy bed with the mosquito nets around them you know, a, an outside shower situation, which was great when it's 45 degrees outside and you're going to bed and, you know, you take a nice hot shower. And then, you know, they actually had heated blankets and stuff if you wanted in the beds and stuff. It was, it was glamping for sure. You know, you had a sofa, you could hang out on your netted deck and do whatever you wanted. It was pretty, pretty amazing. And then they actually also had a central lodge area where you'd meet and eat and all that kind of stuff. And then the safari schedule was pretty much the same. So that was, we actually had seven days of actual safari time and we experienced those three areas while we were doing it. So I, I actually was really impressed with the itinerary is my point of that, of, of laying that all out because we got to experience a lot of different ways to see the park. So, so on a wild and exposed trip next year, it would be similar. Yeah, that's the plan. It may not be the exact same itinerary. Um, we're talking about maybe starting in the north and working our way south instead of doing up and down. Um, but yes, it'll be something similar where we'll get to maybe do a northern camp um, that's more like the public concession maybe and then do some time in the park and maybe, you know, whether it's at, a, when I said Mopani, I didn't, I wasn't clear, but there's like four or five camps in the park too. And we stayed in public housing there, but they're essentially the same kind of buildings we stayed in the first lodge, but they're a little less swanky 
and you know it's pretty meager accommodations but they're cheap and um and the, in those scenarios you, the thing that's kind of hard about it you don't get the night drive situation because of the poaching situation right you're not allowed to be driving around in the park after dark and so when you're staying in those camps you actually have to be in the camp walls which are high fence and they have gates by 5 30 in the evening and they shut the door and if you're not in you know you you basically i don't know what they do to you but you're supposed to get in trouble whatever that means so um but yeah anyways so that limits you some and then they don't open the gate in the morning until i think it's six o'clock in the morning when they open the gate so you're kind of there but they do it for reasons like when you're in the gates right you can walk around do whatever you want they had a restaurant there they have like a store a general store you can you know you can walk freely without having to worry about you know predators and stuff roaming around so that's the reason behind it. And that's just a different experience. But anyway, starting up there, maybe staying in one like that and then ending the trip down on the south end potentially. But that's what we're talking about doing is something similar in that nature. So so what was your favorite encounter on this whole expedition? You know, I've thought a lot about that. And I, it's, hard to, it's hard to pin it down to just any one. Um, but I, I'll tell you what, one thing, you know, the leopard encounter right off the bat was crazy. Cause that's one that I really wanted to see that I really just didn't think we were going to have a, a good situation to be able to see it and photograph it. I mean, having a leopard in a tree with a kill was like my, like, that was the shot I was wanting to try to get. Right. And then to get it with like an hour into the trip, it's like, well, like, you know, <laughs> check. It's like <laughs> now what, right. You know, it's like, this is crazy. Um, but there's a couple critters that I, you know, cause you never see when you don't see these animals in real life, you just don't have an appreciation for them. That's just the reality of it. I mean, you do, but you don't, you don't realize how little of appreciation you have for them until you see them in person. You get to see their behavior, their, their attitude, their personalities. And I'll tell you what, the couple of the critters I fell in love with was the Cape Buffalo and those big, those big Tusker elephants. I mean, and I guess it's just, I like the honorary critters. I don't know. I like the ones that have attitude, you know? I think that's a big reason I like bull elk in the rut is because they got that testosterone and they got that attitude, you know, and they show it a lot with their body language and their, and their behavior. But yeah, those, those elephants, not even the big elephants, but the, the, the male elephants, they tend to have a little bit of an attitude. Um, we had some young bulls that were even kind of flexing on us and coming at the vehicle and, you know, swiping their foot and their trunk and throwing dirt on themselves and shaking their heads and all that funny, you know, it's aggressive behavior, but it's from this little tiny dude. It's, you know, it's just kind of funny. The The safari guides were good about, you know, kind of joking about that kind of stuff. But and then we had one that was drive. We were driving away and he, he wouldn't do it when we were sitting there. When we started driving away, then he started chasing us down and doing that stuff. And he's like, oh yeah, talk big when we start to drive away. You know, so <laughs> it, it was pretty fun to see that stuff. But. <laughs> <laughs> so were there big groups of elephants or did you always have like smaller groups? So we actually did see, I mean, not unfortunately, but like um, surprisingly, that was the word I was looking for. Um, We did see quite a few big groups of elephants. I was surprised. Nothing probably like you'd see it like Amboseli or something like that. Right. But for where we were, we saw, they weren't in good scenarios to photograph, but we did see a lot of elephants and we saw a lot of big family groups. Um, We'd ended up seeing I don't know, three or four Tuskers that were of, you know, I'd say, I don't know. I'm just guessing but based on what Drew told me, because I'm, you know, I'm learning all this stuff still with these, with these critters, but probably 70 pound, 60, 70 pound Tuskers, which is, you know, that's the size and the weight of their, of their ivory. And so that's probably, if you took one that was reaching the ground, 
with their tusks, which is fairly rare anymore. Um, that might be like a hundred pound tusker. So that gives you an idea of one. It's probably about half that. So it's still a pretty big animal with pretty big tusks, but nothing like those ground draggers or whatever you want to call them um, that you can see in Ambicelli still. Um, but in, and actually Drew did see one that was probably 110 pound elephant in Kruger and he wasn't even on the board. There's in Mopani, there's a really cool, like an elephant museum at in the camp and you can go in there and see like some of the tuskers that have lived in the park and they've got the big tusks so mounted with the skulls and that and the, that you can go see and stand by and touch and stuff and then they've got like a wall of fame that shows the existing tuskers that are still alive and in the park and kind of where their their territory is if you will so it was kind of cool to see that and then you can kind of get a feel for where if you wanted to see one of the bigger tuskers where you might want to spend some time in the park and just hope that you, you know, have an encounter because it is a lot like Yellowstone that way where you can't leave the road. There's a lot more roads you can drive on than in Yellowstone. But, you know, again, you can't get out of the car like you can in Yellowstone, right? So when you're in your own vehicle, you you really need to be careful about, you know, those elephants. I I, I'm a, I think from what I've heard, they, they, they've turned a few cars over in their time. So, you know, you definitely got to be careful and pay attention to animal behavior and not push it and, you know, give them their space and all that still. Um, but yeah, to have those experiences with those big Tuskers was just, I had one, I actually shared on my story. I came out of my tent and I got quite a bit of flack from a few guys, which I understand. I get it. But I walked out of my tent and there's this big Tusker and he would, you know, I was like, I couldn't go by. He wouldn't let me by, but they move around quite a bit. So I just had to wait him out. So about five minutes he was gone, but I, I sat there and grabbed my camera and took some photos and it looks like I'm really close, right? But I'm not. I mean, I was, I could run in my tent if I needed to, not that that would stop an elephant, but he wasn't worried about me, right? It was just one of those things where when I came out, I think I surprised him and he kind of, you know, reacted. And uh, I, the, the video that, or the picture that Drew posted was of me taking a photo of this elephant with the tent kind of in the frame. And I had to like plead my case to the guys, like, listen, guys, I just came out of the tent and there he was. I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't like approaching this big old Tusker, you know, on purpose, but, but yeah, I just, that's the cool thing about that place. The whole place, you just never know what you're going to see, you know, it, and there's so much wildlife. I mean, I don't think there was a time when we weren't seeing something, whether, even if it was just Impalas, I mean, every time we were going around a corner, we were seeing something else, wildebeest, Impala, giraffes, whatever it was, it was just everywhere. So pretty amazing. I asked you about the wildlife encounter, which could it not involve pictures right out of your pictures or the uh -huh. images or video you came away with do you have a top 10 already or have you even been through all of them i haven't even been through all of them I mean, i've looked at them cursory dumped them you know onto the computer and kind of went through and and deleted the stuff that i didn't did it, you know duplicates whatever um i ended up taking a total of twenty thousand images so a little a little trigger happy um <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you have uh, to you have to over there right oh 100 yeah. and here's the thing right a lot of the photos i'll never do anything with but it's the first time i saw a lot all those critters every single one of them was the first time for me mm -hmm. so you know i shot it just because i could and it's free and it doesn't cost me anything and um but yeah i don't know that i've got a top 10 i've got a couple that i'm really excited about that i haven't even edited yet um, you know, some of the, the leopard one I posted today was a, was a, I was pretty excited about, um, you know, I've got some Cape Buffalo, I've got some hyenas, the wild dog stuff was pretty cool just because of how rare it is to see them. 
you know, there's, I uh, do have a couple elephant ones that I'm excited to play with, you know? So, I mean, I think with all of the animals we saw, there's, there's probably even with the zebras and the wildebeest and the giraffes and stuff, I think there's, there's photos that I'm excited about for each of the animals that we photographed. And I know a lot of it's just because I've never photographed it before, but um, you know, it's, it's hard in a scenario like that to go out there and try to get something new and unique because it's been done so many times. Um, and you don't want to just have this stereotypical, you know, yeah. While, you know, there's the normal light with a portrait of an animal that's been done 800 times, you know? So yes, I got a lot of that, but it's because I never photographed it before. And I also felt very fortunate to get some unique situations where I could play with light a little bit and, you know, I got a hippo, like, for example, coming out of the water that was backlit and some stuff like that, you know, that I'm excited to play with. Just, you know, different light situations. So Okay, so listening to you talk about this, this goes back to what I was going to say earlier when you were talking about, you know, feeling like a couple of days into the trip, you you had the 10 that you wanted, you know, the big right. 10 well, or whatever. Right, we had photographed the big 10 and seen the big 10. Which right. Is, right. But... And you said something about, you know, I felt like it was this kind of trip. I was going to say, it sounds like a Jason Loftus trip to me. You get, <laughs> you get the critters and you get them in great light. And you, I mean, yeah, it doesn't sound like anything out of the ordinary for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know how it is too, right? I mean, once you've kind of photograph that animal and you've got the, okay, I got the portrait, you know, and then it's like, now you can focus right, on now yeah. let's focus on trying to do some cool stuff. You know, and that's kind of how I felt about it. But yeah. And then just the amount of encounters we had, I mean, I will, I won't argue with that. I mean, we were very fortunate to have the number of encounters we had. Um, we yeah, had that leopard shot is crazy. Well, thank yeah, you, you keep saying yeah. you posted them, but I'm looking on your Instagram and I don't see them. Where'd you post them? Um, or maybe well, they're, they're they're there. They're just on the second row because Instagram has that new feature where you can pin photos. Oh, no, you're not seeing them. Um, yeah, you, you've been no, out. For I haven't been on Instagram line, so. forever. Yeah, they're in the second row. The le There's a leopard shot and the Cape Buffalo shot. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. But, but yeah, those, so, you know, me, uh, just the lights and shadows and stuff. I just love to play with, obviously. And a lot of people do, but, Mm -hmm. um, to get some of those scenarios where I could do some of that was exciting. You know, that's, that's what I was excited about. Did you find the quintessential dark background, Jason Loftus signature yeah. <laughs> light? Um, you know, there's a couple scenarios where I think, you know, I got some drafts at long distance that I actually am kind of excited about. It's a little different kind of an image, you know, but really dark background of trees and stuff with the draft and the light, you know, kind of a situation. Um, some of that that I'm going to play with and see, but, not probably like the, you know, the elk shot or whatever that we ever, that we talk about, but you know, that kind of light was, I didn't ever have a situation like that, but you know, that's with a trip like this, right. You're just, you're happy to see the things that you saw and then the, the have some unique lights, just a bonus because, you know, I, I people go over there and do multiple safaris to see, I mean, I've heard people tell me already that have come back and I've had chats with that have said, you know, I've been over there X amount of times and never seen a wild dog, for example, or, you know, I've been over there and never had a chance to shoot a leopard with a kill in a tree, but seen them, but never had a chance to photograph them, you know? So, I mean, you, you, you realize how fortunate you are to have those encounters and just, you know, I, I'm not complaining at all. I mean, 
I think Drew tried to keep reminding us that you guys don't understand how lucky you are. You've seen 30 wild dogs in three days. And, you know, most, there's a lot of locals that come here every year with the hopes to see a wild dog, you know? So, mm-hmm. and then to have them hunting right by the vehicle and those interactions with the hyenas and all, just all that, you know? So it was, it was an, it was an incredible experience for sure. And I mean, it's one of those now it's like, yeah, when, when am I going back? You know, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately I'm going to have a lot of these on my list and I need to just quit my job and, start just start traveling the world i guess but <laughs> yeah i did have a ticket for that mega millions that was at 1.3 billion dollars <laughs> did somebody win yeah somebody in wisconsin so i'm hoping that it was hood and then <laughs> uh maybe we can visit with him about right. coming on staff yeah no joke huh <laughs> So what kind of equipment did you take every day and when did you have dust problems and did you have the go-to like setup or did you have multiple cameras with multiple setups or what, how did that work? Great question. Cause I was stressing about that obviously before I went, I really was worried about having the right gear and I was worried about the dust. That was a big one for me, but you know, it was crazy with it being as wet as it was, didn't have any dust problems at all. I don't even think I worried about wiping my camera off one time as far as dust goes. Um, I felt I had the exact right gear and listened to Drew on that. I took my 400 millimeter. Um, I also, you know, you're on a couple small flights when you're going from Joburg to Skakuza and you don't have the overhead room. So I definitely took a Pelican case, um, hard case, the, the air, the Pelican air that is hard sided and it fits a 400 with a body. And then it also fits um, another body with my 70 to 200 and my 1.4. That was about perfect for that gear and it fit in there perfect and it was protected. And that's, that's all I took with me. It was that from a photography standpoint. Um, and it was perfect. I used the 70 to 200 way more than I thought I would. Uh, you know, there was times when we had elephants so close to this fire vehicle that 70 millimeters was too much. So, you know, it's just, it's just the, the, the way it works there, you know, and, um, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, some of those animals are so stinking big, right? You 70 millimeters is actually pretty, pretty tight. It is. It can be. And again, like I said, I used the 7,200 way more than I thought. So when I was in the safari vehicle, it was kind of a pain sometimes because the one camp, we actually had two safari vehicles for the 10 of us. And that was perfect. Cause we had room to set your extra gear in the seat, you know? And on the last one, we actually had all of us in one safari vehicle. So there was not an open seat. And so fortunately for me, my wife and my son were there with me. And my wife was kind enough to hold my 70 to 200 while I was using the one to 400 or my 400 or whatever. So it worked out. But, you know, if as you're thinking about that, you know, like for me, for example, um, if I went again and I knew I was going to be by myself in the vehicle with a full vehicle, I would definitely want like my cotton carrier or something on me so I could keep my 70 to 200 tucked away on my chest rig or something and be able to still shoot with my 400. Um, but yeah, the, that 400 ended up being perfect for a lot of the stuff. It was just like the perfect lens and those guys, I mean, they try to put you close. I mean, there was times we were like, okay, we can back up some. I mean, I can't photograph that with my 400 and I really would like to get some stuff with my 400, you know, with that cheetah on the, on the ant or on the termite mound, you know? So anyways, it, it was, it was pretty incredible that all the stuff we saw and then the gear ended up being perfect. I mean, as far as the, um, 
what I would say, I didn't even pull out my one to 1.4. I actually just had a, um, somebody reach out to me and ask me about um, if they thought a 500 was too much. And I said, yeah, it's too much, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it might depend on where you're going. But for me, with the experience we had and everything that Drew told us, the 400 was perfect. And in some, in a lot of cases, it was too much. So I took the 1.4 just in case, but I never even took it out of the case. Yeah. There's some places where you can do a little bit more birding and you, you end up with like those bee catchers or whatever, and you, right. you might want a little bit more lens there, but that would right. be the only scenario. Well, and I would say that's a fair point, Ron. And so if you are wanting to do birds too, right? So um, one of the things that I did notice is we, we could get, we'd pull up right next to like a lilac breasted roller and they're just a beautiful bird and they're all over down there. Um, but a lot of times they wouldn't sit because well, we were getting so close that they didn't stay put. And if you if you had like a 1.4, then you could just get enough reach where they could stay stay put and you could photograph it. Mm-hmm. Um, our our group wasn't focused on birds, but you know there's definitely a lot of birds for the birders out there. There's definitely a lot of birds down there to photograph. We saw some cool stuff, and I'm going to massacre the names because I'm not good at this. But like the uh, we saw a we didn't get to photograph it, but I think they said a great a great hawk owl. Um, I think it was the largest owl that's in Africa. We saw one of those. It just, we kind of kicked it up when we were looking for something else. And then we ended up, you know, the yellow beaked um, hornbills, which are, you know, the, mm-hmm. um, what's this name from, uh, from uh, Lion King, um, Kid Gravy. We're calling them this the whole trip. Zazu, sorry, Zazu. So from Lion King, right? That's the yellow beaked hornbill. Anyways, and then um, we saw these these really cool birds. They're about the size of a turkey. They're actually bigger body wise, but they're I want to say they're they're called. Oh, I'm gonna mess this up. It's something like a red beaked ground hornbill or something like that. But they're really crazy looking. They got a big black body, and then they got this really big hornbill, and they got red markings on their heads. So yeah, just some really off the wall critters that you see over there that are just, you know, running around. Even the guinea fowl are just kind of wild, you know, mm-hmm. there's, and there was hundreds of them running around, you know, just everywhere. You know, you'd almost run them over sometimes. They're just everywhere. But, you know, we saw sand grouse, we saw all kinds of different birds and vultures, obviously everywhere. Um, you know, we had a scenario where we had a, a dead elephant off the side of a road off one of the river drives. And it was literally 10 feet off the road, but it was in super thick brush. And there was vultures and hyenas coming and going from this elephant carcass. And, you know, you're 10 feet away in your vehicle when we were in the vans and, you know, just roll the window down and there they are. You know, there's a hyena on an elephant. It's just like crazy, you know, but, (laughs) but that's awesome. Were there huge herds of buffalo or how, how did that play out? So, you know, we didn't see a ton of um, buffalo when we were there. We did see one big herd one morning and got quite a few shots. And then we had a couple other encounters with some loners. I, you know, they call them Daga boys. Some of the big bulls that just kind of go off on their own. Or they might even be in like small groups of three or four bulls or whatever. And we saw some of those and photographed a couple of those. Um, but we didn't see a ton. And then after we left, Drew was, uh, you know, he spent more time in the park after we left. And um, he ended up seeing tons of them ton you know as he was in the park more ended up seeing tons of them so that you know it's just kind of that ebb and flow of wildlife as they move around and that and we just weren't in the right places all the time to see i would have loved to have spent more time photographing the, the buffalo for sure i might just think they have a lot of personality and they just look so stinking ornery you know <laughs> so with the planes game i mean there's so much right 
Uh-huh. But I think I saw a message somewhere that would have come in on my Zolia or something, but you said something about kudu. So I yep. love the kudu every time I was over there. It's just playing with that. And it is a lot like an elk, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, they I mean, got you horns the... and not antlers, but right, right. they're I mean, probably similar, similar size and kind of have yep. the attitude and. Yep. Yeah. I'd say that. And the one thing that's cool, like we talked about it, like you kind of knock off that little hump off their back and, you know, take their horns off and you'd, you'd probably, and if it was brown, you'd think it was an elk. I mean, that's kind of the, they look a lot like an elk. Um, but yeah, that's one of my favorites. And we didn't, we didn't really get to spend a lot of time with any big kudu bulls. Um, we saw a few, but didn't just, you didn't have the right situation to photograph them. But, you know, we photographed water buck, we photographed, you know, cheetahs. We ended up having really good encounters with some cheetahs, two brothers that were, you know, doing some hunting and stuff. Um, you know, just everything you can think of. I mean, Impala, I mean, we could have, we could have taken thousands of Impala photos. I mean, there was Impala everywhere, you know, and you, you quickly learn why that's probably the number one, you know, prey animal for most of those, most of those predators over there. Um, but what yeah, about I mean, like Sable and Nyala and all that kind of, did you see all that too? No, we didn't see any Nyala or any Sable. I think those are more Northern and they're more, you know, I don't even know if they're in Kruger, to be honest. There might be some in Kruger, but I think they're more, you know, North and out in other areas. Um, So there's definitely a good reason to go back, right? There's other critters I haven't seen yet. So, Um, but yeah, for us, for the most part, it was the, the wildebeest, zebras, you know, the giraffes and the impala and the kudu. There was, we, we did see quite a few kudu. Um, but those were probably the majority of the plains game or the ungulates that we were seeing. And we would see all those on a really regular basis, you know. And then we haven't talked much about lions. Did you see, or I'm sure you saw them, but did you get a chance to photograph lions? Yeah, we did. We actually had a really, we had a couple of really good encounters. We, our guide actually in the, in the first concession we were in, he, uh, he saw the tracks in the road and he got out and told us just to stay put for a minute. He was going to just try to see where, where they entered the grass. And they were fresh that morning because that was the morning that it had rained. And then, and that's, so the, I'll tell you this whole morning because it was cool how it unfolded, but this was after the rain. So the rain kind of started to die down and he saw the tracks and he went to start to walk. And all of a sudden we heard him yell some obscenities and kind of freak out like, holy, you know, and we all like turned around and my wife, Mel joked about it. She's like, you leave the keys here just in case you get eaten. Right. You know, joking. <laughs> and, um, he went back there and basically what he did is he saw where they went in and he stepped into the grass to get a little better fill. And he literally almost stepped on a male lion that was laying right off the side of the road that we didn't even see. He was just tucked in the grass and kicked it up and it scared him and he ran. It was no big deal, but it scared him. Right. It, he, to the point where he's like, Whoa, that was a little close. And <laughs> then we went and got in the truck and off we went and found them and, you know, sat and photographed them for an hour or so. But, um, so yeah, we had that Pride Alliance and then we actually saw another Pride Alliance and actually photographed them a couple different times when we were in the other concession. And uh, the one scenario unfolded where we actually had some really good light to photograph them too. The sun had just come out and it was that golden hour and the male, the male gave me one shot that I think it's kind of, I'm shooting kind of down because, because of the scenario, but he's coming up out of this like ditch and he just steps into the light. So that might be one where it's kind of getting close to that, you know, that elk scenario, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that morning back up just a bit. Cause that morning, that's the morning we ended up seeing the wild dogs too. So we saw the lions and we hung out with them for a bit. And then he got a radio call from somebody else that said they'd seen some wild dogs hunting 
And he was sitting there him hawing about should we do it because they're usually so fast that they hunt. They just are on the move constantly. So for them to to be stay put and actually see them is pretty rare. So then he said, okay, we're going to do a try this. We've seen the Alliance. Let's go. So I'm not joking. When we, we got back on the main road and we started hauling, and he, he, was, he was doing normal. And then he got a radio and um, call. And apparently the guy that was kind of keeping an eye on him, they'd taken something down. So then he was like, hold on. <laughs> Because <laughs> this is going to, we actually, we're going to get to see these things. So hold on. And I mean, I'm not joking. We had people like leaving the seats in the back, you know, just like, just, we were going and it was, we were having a blast. It was fun. But, um, and those vehicles are amazing, by the way, just a side note. Um, but we, so we get to them and we pull right up and I'm just like, I'm like, I'm thinking, right. We're, this is like day two and we're going to like, you know, we got to stay back. These are predators and they're doing their thing. And like, we pull right up to them. I mean, it's like. <laughs> Like no big deal. And they could have cared less about us, right? They're just used to it. So, and then the hyenas are there and they're doing their thing. And all of a sudden they, you know, we get some, you know, some okay shots, but it's kind of backlit and it's not the best scenario. It's crazy. It's going on. You're seeing it. And then you get a couple of photos and then the dogs are gone. They take off running after something else. And the hyenas come in and they pick up some bones and scraps. And then the guy's like, well, you know, we fall in for a bit and we thought it's going to be over. Anyways, we ended up getting where they, we see them going to these trees and we stop on the side of the road. And then these, there's hyenas just coming one by one after the other through. So he let us get out of the vehicle there and shoot the hyenas as they were going by. And we thought we were pretty much done. Well, then all of a sudden he heard, he heard the dogs making some noises that we didn't hear, but he heard it. He said, okay, let's go. Jumped in the vehicle and off we went. And they were just inside the trees and had killed something else. So then we're right there. They had just killed it. And then we sat there and had that experience with them. And they, they devoured that thing in about five minutes. I mean, it didn't take no time for them to, to devour it. And then, you know, they had their little scrap and we got some pretty good photos and then they, then they took off and were gone. But that was, you know, that morning, the whole morning was pretty slow because it was rainy and we didn't have good light. And it was kind of, you know, it was like, man, this is just going to be a bust of a day. And then we end up having the lion encounter and then the wild dogs twice, you know, so it was pretty, you know, it's one of those, again, you just don't know what you're going to see and when it's going to happen and when it's going to go down. So, And you so. don't stay home when it's getting stormy. doesn't matter whether no, heavens it's in no, Africa right? or Alaska or Wyoming or Colorado. Get We've the heck out about there. that a hundred times. Stuff's going to get good. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Sorry, I hit the mic, but. That's so, awesome. yeah, man, just, I mean, I could just go on and on. We could make this thing a four hour. I could tell you story after story, but. <laughs> But it definitely whets your appetite, right? Because you think, okay, I've been to Kruger. Yeah. But there's Botswana, there's Zimbabwe, there's yep. Tanzania, Amicelli, there's Kenya, Tanzania, there's all places. It's like right, you could right. spend a lifetime and not see everything. And right. there's just so much. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I definitely want to go back to Kruger, but it definitely, like you said, it wet my appetite to go. And, you know, I think, I don't think, I know the next time I do go back, I'm going to extend my trip more and try to do another location, right? Like Ambacilli or the Masamara or something, right? To try to try to broaden my exposure and to see some other things too. But to me, it's like, you got to do two weeks if you go. I mean, it's almost like you don't have to, but you're kind of crazy not to, because the worst part's that 15 and a half hour flight, you know, that, hmm. you know, from, from here for me, it's, you know, a four, a four hour, three and a half hour flight to Atlanta. And then it's a 15 and a half hour flight to Johannesburg. And then it's another, roughly hour flight from there to get to the park, you know? So did they stop at that Island of refuel? 
Nope. <clears throat> There's an island on the way to Johannesburg. So these planes must be, when I went last time we had to, it was 20 hours from Delta or on a Delta flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg, but we had to stop and get fuel. Oh, interesting. Before yeah, I we think actually hit the continent. I could be wrong on this. And if some, one of the listeners knows, I'd love to hear, but I think everything I looked at, I think this is like that Atlanta to Johannesburg is the longest one, you know, in the air trip you can take on an airplane, I think, because everywhere else you go, it's a shorter, you know, it's like 12 hours or 13 hours. It's maybe as long as it might be from that, you know, that one time in the air. But so for this trip, did you take care of all that itinerary? I mean, so Drew set the trip up. So you knew you had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Are you responsible for everything up to that point? So the nice thing is, is Drew's been doing this for years over there from, for, you know, for not just photography, but from a hunting standpoint too. And um, he's got a lot of relationships with the people where, you know, we actually knew who to meet at the airport. When we got to Johannesburg, we were told, go find Mr. X. He'll be right here. He's got your name. Just don't talk to any other people, you know, cause they get kind of pushy and want to help you with your bags and stuff, which you don't want. Cause they'll just take your bag potentially. Um, so, you know, we, we knew the rundown, we knew how to be safe. We got with Mr. X. He put us in a van with our gear, took us to the Airbnb, which was in Johannesburg. We stayed the night. It was in a big gated community. So everything, we felt very safe. Um, and then, but yeah, to your point, Drew just told us we need where we needed to be, you know, by it when. And then when we told him, we, we would tell him the flight that we were on and when it would get there so that the their team on the ground there would know what, what time to pick us up in that. Um, and then the same thing on the way back, right? We ended up staying an extra day in Johannesburg, which was cool because we had to go and actually go downtown Johannesburg and do some um, souvenir shopping and stuff. Um, so that was kind of fun to see, you know, a, a, to see the Johannesburg proper and see some of the, you know, the downtown area is really nice. And then there's some other areas, right, with the, you know, the poverty and that that you don't you don't realize how the poverty in other parts of the world is way worse than it here is in the United States, you know, and um, for my son um, to see some of that and my nephew to see that, you know, it's a kind of an eye-opening experience for, for them for sure. So um, we got to have that experience too. And then they get you back to the airport, same situation. We stayed at that same Airbnb again, very safe. They had us taken care of. They took us to the airport, dropped us off and sent us on our way. And we were off and running. So he's got it. He's got it figured out as far as all that goes. Um, and then, you know, as we make the next ones for the next year or two or whatever, um, it'd be a very similar situation, you know, just need to be here so you can catch this flight by this time on this day um, from Johannesburg to Skakuza and however you want to do it, you know, you, you know, however you want to get there, you can choose how you want to get there. So you stay to Airbnb and then you jump on another plane to fly into Kruger. Correct. Same airport it's or about, is it a different airport? Um, there's only the Skakuza is the one camp and or airport in the park. And but did you have to go to that one. international airport to do that, to catch that flight? Or did yes, you we did. I'm sorry. We went smaller back. municipal airport. No, that's a good question. So we went back to the Johannesburg International or whatever that, I uh, can't remember the, the number for the, or the letters for the airport, but they're the main airport we flew into. We went back there and got in. It was super easy getting back on that little small flight. You know, it's one of those flights where it's kind of like the smaller business jet we were on. I think it may have sat. It's a two by three seater. Again, no overhead space. It probably sat. I don't know, 30 or 40 people, maybe something like that. And um, they do, you know, a couple trips a day from Johannesburg to Skakuza. But it's one where you get on a bus at the terminal and they take you out to the tarmac and you, you know, you load the plane that way. 
So, but yeah, you know, all of it's part of the adventure. I mean, we were talking about as a family, cause my again, Mel and Ann Hunter went with me and, you know, the travel home was kind of rough, you know, it was like three days to, after we left the park to actually get home. And, um, I actually did a little bit of another jaunt, just a side note and a tip for people. They probably know better than me. I haven't done a ton of this international travel at this point, but, um, we ended up saving quite a bit of money when I was trying to book the airfare from Salt Lake city to, to Johannesburg, I was getting prices on Delta for, you know, right around 3000 to 3,200 bucks a person. And, you know, for three of us, you know, that's almost $10,000 just to fly there. And I was like, man, that's crazy. You know? So Drew said, Hey, have you looked at what it's going to cost? Like, like from Dallas or something or whatever, or San Antonio? I'm like, no, I haven't. So I got on there and started looking and a flight at that time when we booked from San Antonio to Johannesburg was only like 950 bucks a person. So it was $300 flight for me to fly from Salt Lake City to San Antonio. We stayed the night, got up the next morning, caught our flight from San Antonio to Atlanta, which was the same flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg that I would have been on if I'd have flown from Salt Lake to, you know. So it just was, it was very, it was kind of frustrating, but it saved me like $5,000. You know, it was like crazy. It's like totally worth a, hundred dollar hotel bill and uh you know so ultimately overall saved me for you know it was worth that extra little jaunt but when you're coming home it's like man i wish i just didn't have to do this <laughs> one last flight you know but yeah, right it was worth it but yeah so that's a little trick you know i i never knew that but it's crazy how it's so much cheaper um you know and you end up on the same flight for the main portion of the flight which is kind of crazy but. <laughs> Yeah, Travis, my editor that does all the editing on the projects we do, he he's like a professional travel agent and he's got all those little tricks figured out. And I wouldn't have thought of that either. I would have been, you know, it's good to have that experience with this first trip because now you know, right? oh, right. hey, let's try this or this or this. And it's crazy right. that it can be that much different, right? What's what's the magic pill for going to San Antonio? Why San Antonio? Right. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. Know. Yeah. It makes no sense to me. I'm sure it has to do with, you know, maybe it's international airport to international airport or some, I, who knows the connections and I have no idea, but yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me, but you know, you play the game, right. And it saves you that much money. It's well worth it. So. You guys were wheeling and dealing on those tickets when we were in Yellowstone last winter, right? Yeah. We, we bought them as early as we could essentially, because I knew, you know, I was, well, I wouldn't know, but I was worried about the prices climbing um, and then, you know, it was, we were fortunate because who knew the gas thing was coming and everything else. Right. And a lot of those other flights of folks that booked later ended up paying some pretty significant increases in pricing and, and fuel mm-hmm. surcharges and things like that. So, yeah, we got fortunate that way too. So the, the group that you were with, so there was 10, but there was what, three or four of you, did you say your nephew yeah. went to? Yeah. So it ended up basically being a family trip. Quite honestly, it was kind of funny. It ended up being my, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. And then my other sister-in-law and her son, and then me, Mel, and Hunter. Mel, Hunter, and I. Sorry, Mom. That's my, my mom would have corrected me on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's always there in the back of my head. But um, And then uh, then Kelly Elmer and his wife came as well. And then the 10th one was actually Drew. You know, he was the, he's the one that put it all together. So, Oh, that's like perfect. I was going to ask you. I was like, did you know the other people? But obviously you did. We knew everybody. So, you know, that's always nice, right? And the other thing from a photography standpoint, I will say we were very spoiled because really the only ones that were really serious about photography was, you know, Kelly and myself and then my sister-in-law 
some, you know, she has a little nicer, she has a Nikon and uh, she's gone to Yellowstone with me a few times and she likes photography, but she's not quite as, as serious about it as we are, right? As nuts about it. So for the most part, Kelly and I would switch off having that front left lower seat. And then even the driver would let us sit with them in the front seat where, so we could just get a little bit lower sometimes too. And then sit you learn pretty quick. That, what? No, no, the passenger seat. So, <laughs> oh, <gotcha. laughs> oh yeah. The other side of the road. That was the other thing, right? Oh, gotcha. They drive on yeah. the right side. Right. So yeah. Good point. Ron. Good, good catch there. <laughs> so you've got pictures of all this, like the safari trucks and the tents and yep. all, you know, the, all the different accommodations that you stayed in. So we can put all that stuff up if everybody wants to see yeah. kind of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was a big, that was a big question for a lot of us. Like, what are we actually going to be? I mean, because Drew tells you, but it's hard to get it in your mind, right? What, what are you actually going to be in? What are the accommodations really like? And so I actually have a couple of walkthrough videos I could send you to Mike, if you wanted to put those up there. They're just cell phone videos, but um, it gives people a feel for the accommodations pretty good. So. Yeah. I think but, yeah. anything like that, especially if the trip's going to go again next year, it just gives you a snapshot into what's to be expected. Yep. Yeah. And I, you know, it's just, I, I couldn't, I mean, Drew, Drew really nailed it. I'm just being sincere. I, I was really kind of wondering and worried and, you know, I was just really going to come out the way I was hoping and, you know, and, you know, I'm trying to do this kind of, you know, in a different way. And I, am I making a mistake by doing that? And, you know, a lot of people just go and they stay at one camp, one place the entire time they're there. And I really think it, this is the right way to approach it. You're, you've got a little more downtime in between driving to places, but I think the benefit is seeing different animals at different places. Cause when you're, for example, if you're on a concession, you're, you're going to see more than likely you're going to see lions cause they kind of are territorial and they have their territory, but you're probably going to see that those same lions the entire time. So if you're there for a week, you might see those lions three or four times, but it's the same lions, you know? So not that that's a bad thing, but it's just, you know, we saw three different lion prides. We saw three different leopards, you know, we saw um, three different, um, two different sets of cheetahs, you know, you know, which was, I think there's some benefit to that is all I'm saying. Right. From my perspective anyways. So well, and like I said earlier, it's limitless. I mean, you can go to so many places over there and see so much cool stuff, whether it's Zimbabwe or Tanzania or Botswana. I really want to go to Botswana at some point. Right. But it's a whole unknown <laughs> thing. I've done all these. I've done some of the other ones where I'm not. I'm Now that I've done it, I'm like, oh, okay. And I've been paid to go. So usually somebody else is taking care of all the logistics. So that's really cool because then you get to figure it out on somebody else's dime. But when you're paying for it, you really want to have be pretty smooth right. and having that experience helps, but I've never been to like Botswana, but I'm sure it's not that big a deal. You just got to dig into it and figure it out. So right. maybe that's your job, Ron, is you lead a trip to Botswana next year. There you go. <laughs> well, Ron's got another trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah for, for next year speaking but, of that <laughs> yeah speaking of and and the uh information will be up on the page here soon but we are going to svalbard norway with a wild and exposed trip to hopefully photograph some polar bears um there's arctic fox there's lots of different uh scenarios up there opportunities and so we're gonna we're going to put a trip together. So that'll be coming out. It'll be the second week in May next year. 
something a side note right ron i can't remember what episode it was but we ought to go back and look and maybe put that in the show notes too as a link to that a quick link to that episode that we did on svalbard um just to get mm-hmm. people they can go back and listen to that and get excited about yeah it sven actually the the guest that we had on the podcast he'll be our guide so right it's so uh, you're going to do a write-up on that so we'll have yeah like, uh, yep we'll do a write-up with all the information and contact and sign up pages for people and is that one boat based or are you going to be land-based you're you're on a boat you're you fly into norway proper then fly out to svalbard and from that point you're on the boat and i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the names of the towns i'll spell them (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah then we're we're on the boat the whole time you'll depart the boat and we'll talk about this we'll probably have spin on between now and then to kind of talk about how this trip is going to look. But the the biggest thing there is the opportunity to photograph basically at eye level on the sea ice, on the breaking up sea ice uh, from Zodiac. So you're, you're a little bit lower angle than up on the big, the big icebreaker boats and that you would actually be living on. And so that's the, that's the draw to Svalbard. Plus you get these giant, glaciers in the backdrops you know of your of your shots so it um it presents some pretty incredible opportunities and i think you know just the experience of being out there on that boat on the sea ice and it's in may so it's still going to be cold um that far north so it's it's you know it's going to be an interesting trip it's going to be a trip that maybe stretches you a little bit not physically but mentally and uh but at, at the same time, it's just, it's one of those, you know, natural geographic type experiences that we can go have together and just kind of enjoy it, get to know people along the way. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is one of those adventure trips in my mind. This is just, you know, it's a, probably a bucket list once in a lifetime kind of a trip for me, you know, if, uh, but, and, and probably for a lot of people to be quite honest, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to it. So I don't want to bring this down, <laughs> but I do. I do want to talk about. Um, there was a, a ranger, like right after you guys left. There was a ranger that was that was killed basically because he would not provide these poachers with information on where to find the rhino. And you had talked about seeing black rhino and white rhino, right. and. Uh, so Anton Mzimba, he's 42 years old. He was a ranger for 25 years, you know, so he started at a very young age and it was at a Timbavati. It's a private game reserve right around Kruger. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was, he was shot and killed basically for withholding information from these groups of poachers and you know, it, it kind of goes to just how serious it is over there. And I was kind of surprised when you talked about, you know, them talking about these elephants, the bigger, older males, and actually telling people what their areas were because there's some species that they don't they don't want any location information going out at all because these guys will right. come after them. But, so apparently the – I don't know, and I could be wrong on this, you guys, but apparently the elephants – aren't as big of a concern anymore. And I think they're probably still concerned. Don't get me wrong, but they, and when I said they've set an area, I mean, mm-hmm. you, you got a picture of Kruger national park 
and it might be like this elephant lives in the top third of the park you know what i mean it's not oh, very gotcha. specific yeah yeah. But just to be clear, but because that's a very good point, Ron. But a matter of fact, there's sighting boards throughout the park. You can go to the camps and you can see like they saw, you know, a crocodile here and they saw, you know, elephants here. They saw cheetahs and lions or whatever here. There's a leopard here. And that that board's kept up to date by just visitors. They just kind of mark where they've seen things. And it's kind of cool because it helps you kind of where you might want to focus if you want to see something. But mm -hmm. one of the rules is there you do not put any rhino sightings on that board. And, and the rhino thing is like, it is a real big hot topic right now. And mm. I think that same situation, they actually, they not only killed him, but they shot his wife too. And they, and they, they did it in his home. And I think his wife is still hanging on, but she's just barely hanging on. So, I mean, it's a serious deal. And, you know, you don't realize when you're in your safari vehicle cruising around, we actually got to see, and I'll actually put a post, a photo of this up, um, well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. We'll have to talk about this. Maybe it's not a good thing to put a photo of this up, but we actually saw on a couple different times, we saw some of the anti-poaching, um, uh, what do you call them? The patrols. 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 Thank you. Good gravy. Um, the patrols cruising around with their guns and stuff, right? And they were really cool. We stopped and talked to them a couple of times and got some photos with them a couple of times and thanked them for, you know, doing what they do and stuff. And, um, you know, it's kind of a big deal that they're out there doing that and, uh, they take it serious. You know, they were, um, parking the vehicle and going on foot patrol in specific areas and stuff and that, and trying, you know, doing, doing the best they can. And they got very limited resources over there to try to do that. And, you know, the white rhinos we saw, we saw a family group of five and that was pretty fortunate. Apparently, you know, they did have a big male that was part of the group. And then there was, um, a mother, a mom, and then like two older siblings, I guess, if you will. And then a young one. And the young one was the only one that still had his whole his whole horn. The other ones, you know, they they cut off the horns, they euthanize them, not euthanize, <laughs> they tranquilize and then cut off their horns to save their lives, right? So that they're not that people mm. aren't trying to poach them and kill them for their horns. And then we did see the one black rhino, um, which I won't get into any details about where, but we saw the one black rhino, and it was really cool to see it because it was I think they said it was a younger male, but he was a fairly good size, and um the black rhino and he still had his whole horn so that was pretty cool to see um but you know knowing that it's like how long how long will he make mm -hmm. it and how long will he have that horn and you know you worry because there's so much corruption and in, in things like that which obviously we're, we just talked about a little bit that you know even some of those safari guys might be you know helping give information out unfortunately because you know for those people the kind of money they get from doing something like that you know feeds their family for a year you know, and that goes back to the whole poverty situation and what drives a lot of this, I think, too. So anyways, it's kind of a sad situation and, and kind of scary, actually. But when you're in your safari vehicle and enjoying it, you don't really think about it until you mm -hmm. get back to the States and hear about a story like that. You know, it's like, gosh, dang, man. Yeah. But I, you know, it, it goes to show just how serious these issues are and not only, right. you know, the, it happens in our part of the world, but over there, it's a. Uh, you know, it's literally a life and death thing. And so to pay attention to some of those rules and pay attention to the fact that, hey, turn the GPS off on your camera so you don't have it on your in your metadata and don't be posting exact locations and that kind of thing. It's a, it's for real. Back to the whole idea that you got to be in the gate and you can't be driving around the park. It's not because they're necessarily worried about you being a poacher. I think a lot of it is for your own safety. 
-hmm. because if if you come across poachers they don't ask questions they just shoot you know if you catch them in the act so to speak they you know they're not going to ask questions and it's it's unfortunate that that's the kind of level of um situation this is at but your your safety is literally you know at risk if if you're out there you know cruising around at night where you shouldn't be so hmm. you sorry say you Mike? say like there was a sighting on the north side of the park whatever what you referenced how big is kruger i mean as far as size wise do you have did you remember <clears throat> i guess we could all look it up online but i'm just curious right 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 no i don't remember off the top of my head but it's it's really it's long i know that's kind of like long and skinny and mm-hmm. and I I may say that, but um, I'm just because it's really not that far. You could potentially like I've had buddies in the past that would fly into Johannesburg and then they would just drive up. Right, so it's and not you like could. It's, it's, it's seven thousand five hundred and twenty-three miles squared. Miles or kilometers? This is miles that I'm okay. looking at here. Um, let's see. 19,623 kilometers squared. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's big, you know, it's, it's a big area, but you could drive. I mean, I think it's a, I think Drew said it's about a five hour drive from Johannesburg to, yeah. to Kruger. Um, but, but, you know, just getting on a plane that's, you know, less than an hour and, you know, you literally get up this altitude, they give you a drink and you drop back down and, right. you know, <laughs> jump in a rental vehicle and off you go, you know, it's one of those kind of flights, but they run by I just looked it up. peanuts it's... and peanuts and, pop and park it you landed (laughs) right exactly (laughs) i just looked it up it's five it's 4.9 million acres 4.9 million acres so you figure yellowstone is 2 million acres denali national park is 6 million acres so it's approaching denali size yeah Hmm. so it's it's um 360 kilometers long and has an average width of 65 kilometers. So that gives you an idea of. So, and if you look, I'm just looking at a map here. It's borders Zimbabwe. And then mm-hmm. Botswana is on the same latitude, all parts of it. So Mozambique is right there too. I mean, that's a awesome location, right? And it accessible. Is. Right, right. Yeah, the way Drew put it right is it's like for the first timers going to Africa, it's really kind of like one of the really it's one of the coolest places to go first because you got a really good opportunity to see a lot of variety in one place, which is in some of the other places you won't see as much variety is kind of the way I understand it. But. Well, in South Africa, it gets a bad rap too because it's like uh, it's all high fence. Everybody thinks of high fence and you think of a lot of this baby thing where they raise these baby lions for petting zoos and things like that. And then it's, right, right. Then they're destroyed when they get too old or whatever. But this is true wild. I mean, it's not high fence. It's not. It is Africa, yep. which it's the cool part of wildlife viewing in Africa. Yep, I would agree. And that's that kind of surprised me. I actually expected more of the the high fence stuff. Um, but there was no high fences. We didn't come across a single fence the entire time we were there. So yeah, that's, that's a big deal to me. I, I mean, I would not just personally, I would not be interested in going to a high fence operation to photograph wildlife. You know, it's just, that's just my per, you know, personal opinion on something like that, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, teach their own. Um, there are people that, do and there's places where they you know they take it they are in a high fence situation right i i know there's areas over there that are high fence that um that are fairly large and 
there's no hunting or anything. They're there for safari type viewing and that. So, you know, but that where we were Kruger, that whole area, like you said, when we flew in the cool thing, like you're flying in from Joburg and um, we're starting to get to Atlanta. My wife's like, is that, are those elephants? You know, it's like, Oh, look, those are giraffes. We're landing and you don't realize you're landing in the park. So of course you're seeing, you know, stuff from the air and, and and again, there's just every time you turn a corner, there's more wildlife, and it's incredible the diversity and the amount of wildlife that's in in Southern Africa. Now I want to go. <laughs> I kind of had it out of sight, out of mind for a while. You know, I've been a few times, and then I just didn't think about it. And then you start hearing all these stories, and it's like, ah, it'd be super cool to go back. It'd be cool to do. You know, a lot of these people that do the overlanding thing, where you have a vehicle and you just travel. Through, I mean, you would need six months to do something like that, but that would be kind of cool too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be an amazing trip. Yeah, every time you'd send a message, I was getting a little bit more and more jealous and <laughs> upset that I didn't put more thought into it. But is yeah. what it is. This year was a little tight, so right, right. And yeah, next time. Yeah, hopefully, we won't have anybody else getting married next time. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, awesome show, awesome conversation, and thanks for sharing all that, both of you guys. Yeah, Uh, Mike, I'm I'm envious of you. I talked to you a couple times, you know, via text on the way, or while you were up there, and it was just, you know, I that's where I would rather be. Either of those places, I would have rather been, but. It, uh, well, it sounds like Jason's tent experience was way better than my <laughs> tent experience. Yeah. Four foot by six foot tent for 45 days was, it versus wasn't horrible, the, but it was. Uh, versus the luxury yurt where they're bringing yeah. you a mimosa yeah. in the morning for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so keep cool. your eyes open. There's more trips to come. And uh, there is still. I don't know when this is going to come out, but there is still a spot open on the last bear trip of the year. So make sure you check out the Wild and Exposed page, jump on that boat with Mike and and get up there and have some incredible opportunities to film some some Alaskan brown bears. Fishing bears, hopefully. Fishing bears, yeah. Yeah, but we'd love to have you all along, no matter where we're going. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in 